What's up, y'all? It's Zach Living Corporate. And you know what I mean? We're here. You know what I'm saying? It's Black History Month. And, you know, it's interesting because even though it's Black History Month every February, it feels like there's always some nonsense coming out here just blatantly disrespecting black people. Uh, but shout out to Sharon Lee Ralph and um, and her rendition of uh, the Negro National Anthem. Beautiful rendition. Shout out to... You know what I'm saying? A good football game. You know what I'm saying? I, I was really watching for the commercials in the halftime show. I really haven't been watching since they did what they did to Kaepernick. But um, I watched for the halftime show. Ended up watching the game because I was watching for the commercials, which were okay. They were kind of mid this year, right? Anyway. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Rihanna. My bad. Shout out to all working mothers. And definitely uh, shout out to black women. Um, and shout out to black women. Uh, raising kids goodness gracious having having children um hopefully if you haven't already you going back and you listening to the the episode we talked about black maternity black maternal health um with dr wilson at pfizer we had a really good conversation with her we're pausing taking a step away from uh, the pfizer series this week to bring to you a great conversation we had with shane lloyd uh, over at baker tilly we talk about his role. We talk about his work. We talk about like the landscape of DEI. I'm really excited for y'all to check this conversation out. And I appreciate people like Shane who you can just tell, like they're very cerebral and intentional with everything that they say and just and methodical, uh, methodical in how they think about this work in this space to really make impact. And there's a certain level of optimism that he has that I don't share, uh, but I love and respect him for it all the same. Uh, so Shane, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Um, shout out to all the work uh, that they are leading um, over at Baker Tilly, and um, make sure if you haven't checked out his um, his LinkedIn his information, you'll click the link in the show notes. Get familiar, um, and then now uh, listen. Between now and then, you're gonna hear a few things. I'm paying a few bills, you know what I'm saying? What that's what they say, right? When you have some ads. You notice though, we don't really be doing ads like everybody else. So our stuff is a little bit different, you know what I'm saying? So check out these announcements. Here's some things we got going on just across the network. And um we'll talk to you soon. All right. See you in a minute. Shane Lloyd. It's been a while. How you doing, man? I'm well. I'm very well, Zach. How are you? You know, I'm doing well, man. You know, I was telling you off mic, I got this. I was a newborn. Got this new job. I got a lot of new things happening. All positive. But, you know, a lot of positive things are also exhausting. You know what I'm saying? So, I'm. Uh, I'm but I'm thankful, though. I'm thankful for all of the things. And I'm thankful to be sitting down with you today. Listen, um, you've had a really incredible career. Um, you've navigated quite a few different spaces and we were just, again, talking off mic about the fact that, you know, this is about the year mark of mm-hmm. you being, uh, the head of, uh, diversity, inclusion, and belonging at a, Baker a, Tilly, at an Baker advisory CPA firm. Come on now. So first of all, what led you to Baker Tilly and like why did you say yes to that role and I asked that because I don't know like these head of DEB roles like they're really short lived right like I mean like I, you see the announcements come up and then like mm-hmm. 12 to 18 months maybe 24 months later they just kind of quietly go away to do the next thing like mm-hmm. like what was the rationale in taking the role and then like 
what is your pers- like what is your prospectus in terms of as you look at like you know what like what's your timeline like like I'm I don't say that to be like pessimistic or anything but just looking at the reality like we don't see a lot of head of DEB folks enroll in in position um, for five plus years like we we just don't so like talk to me about all of that sure so first I'll start with yes if we think of some of the really great research done by Russell Reynolds, an executive search firm, where they looked at the experience of chief diversity officers. It used to be that chief diversity officers were in role for at least three years, and now that has gone down to 1.8 years. So that has significantly declined. Um, What we also know, too, is that, frankly, there needs to be more transparent conversations publicly. I think this happens within communities of DEI practitioners, but we actually do need to have more public conversations around what are the set of factors within an organizational environment that would actually guarantee success of DEI leaders. And some of this is already in the Russell Reynolds report on this experience, but part of why this conversation needs to happen is because if we have this conversation more publicly, then people might have a little bit more insight as to why certain DI leaders are, you know, leaving within six months, or there was this announcement and then the person's gone within a year or the like. So that way people are asking the question of, oh, well, maybe they just weren't a good fit for the organization, or maybe the organization actually overspoke about the level of their commitment, the resourcing that they're providing as professional, the um, appropriateness of the reporting structure within the system, and the... Um, reality of what kind of environment were they actually going to enter into. So I'll even give you an example. So Arizent, I think that's the name, is the parent company of the Journal of Accountancy. And just a couple weeks ago, they actually released this study on the return on investment for DEI, which was essentially a broad survey of financial services industries and how they relate to the function of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the really interesting findings that they reported on is that of different industries within, broadly speaking, financial services, so banking, accounting, wealth management, insurance, and others, the greatest level of diversity was seen in banking and the lowest level of diversity in teams was seen in in accounting. But they didn't stop there. They said across industries within financial services, accounting is both the most homogenous and the most resistant to diversity, equity, inclusion. This is their survey. Admittedly, their survey also had a sample size of 700. So if it were like 3,000 plus people, maybe we'd have a little more power. 100,000 people, you know, the the numbers go on. However, I think it is a worthwhile study nonetheless, because I think that in in the world of diversity, equity, inclusion, where we don't have the same kind of formula around credentials... Uh, formula around like what roles you need to be. When I think of, you know, accounting, medicine, law firms, all those have a consistent, you know, you need this degree, you're going to be in this role, and then you're going to be in that role, then you're going to be in this role, and this is what you need to aspire to. 
that's not the same. We don't have that kind of uniformity and consistency within the space of DEI. So that means a lot of people are oftentimes just operating from, okay, well, I'll just read this job description. We'll see what's interesting. We'll leverage my networks. But we do actually need to be asking ourselves around, you know, what what about this industry could help or hinder our ability to achieve success? You know, who is going to be our supervisor? Do they have the right gravitas and the political momentum to till the soil for us to execute our strategy? And over the course of the conversations of the interviews and ultimately to the person joining the organization, to what degree are they committed to allowing you to execute your vision based on however much time you need to do so? Arguably, there's some kinds of diversity, equity, inclusion change that require a generation. You know, it's going to take 30 years. That's just a long time. Obviously, most organizations are looking for something more material than that faster. So we're looking at a year or two or three of, you know, at least moving the needle in, in measurable ways. When I think about what retracted me to Baker Tilly is, one, I actually knew Baker Tilly through some of the work I had already been doing as a DEI consultant and actually was familiar with their executive leadership team and a variety of employees even before I went to Amazon to serve in a DEI role there. So when there was an opportunity to essentially lead at the executive level, reporting directly into the CEO here at Baker Tilly, I thought, well, that's going to be, there's some, there's a lot of intriguing aspects to that. One, I really enjoy the CEO. He's a very thoughtful, progressive, fast-paced individual with a great vision for breaking the mold in public accounting, because accounting is known as uh, people do their two years and then they go into industry or go into other organizations because it's a churn burn culture known for overwork. So he wants to kind of bust that up as someone who is in the world of change management by virtue of diversity. People who are willing to bust up old systems, sign me up. Because that is essentially what we're doing within diversity and inclusion. So that was attractive. I think the other part that was attractive to me was the size of the company. Because at the time, the company was hovering between 4,000 to 6,000 employees. And when you think of, you know, what is a reasonable number of which to effectuate change, that number is, you know, that falls within what I perceived as a manageable number. Additionally, when I think of just historically around jobs, right now, tech industry has a lot of attention for their uh, wins and sins as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion. But before there was big tech as the industry that was seen to provide, you know, the highest compensation, the fastest growth, the hottest, sexiest jobs, we were looking at professional services, financial services. So I think from an industry perspective, this is also an industry that deserves the best and brightest minds around diversity, equity, inclusion to identify how to ensure that people could fully participate within the opportunities that are available. And going a little bit meta for a moment, the aspiration of the accounting industry is to maintain public trust in the organizations that drive the economy. So if accounting as an industry impacting all these lives domestically and globally is not representative of the full diversity within the United States or globally, they're simply not going to be able to be relevant, influential, or sustainable as a profession. So when I think about what the higher order of what I can accomplish, that was also really attractive to me too. So I answered all of your questions, I guess. <laughs> and- you did. No, I appreciate it. Listen, I'm I'm really curious all those things in mind. I mean, I've come from, I'm come from, um, you know, accounting firms. Um, you know, I was at, uh, at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was at Accenture, Capgemini. So I've seen like kind of, I've, I've had some a fairly, I say diverse experiences. Those different, those three firms are mm-hmm. uniquely different from one another. Um, 
and so I definitely feel you on the on the trend and burn piece. One thing I I'll say about like consulting con, consultative context or external client facing consulting context is it seems as if leaders who have um, a large book of business or a large P and L um, they have more and more flexibility to not necessarily adhere to the best behaviors. Speaking more, speaking more, uh, said more directly, my experience and observation has been the larger um, a leader's book of business, mm-hmm. the more flexibility autonomy they have to treat folks in the old kind of way. Um, I'm curious, like yes, classic racism. Yes, I guess I'm curious, like how do you reconcile? Like, what is in your perspective on how to answer that? Right, because I think. Th- I don't, I, I don't know, Shane, if like, I think there's just a limit as to, as to how far diversity, equity, inclusion efforts can go in like capitalist context, because I don't believe there's organizations out there that are going to sacrifice short term or even medium term financial gain in the name of protecting uh, historically marginalized people. Like, I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? A few things. One, going to your rankism comment, I think part of it is, well, one, I've done this in a lot of just DI consulting sessions. And even within my own organization, I asked people, I said, how many of you have actually heard of the term rankism? And most people will not raise their hands unless they've been in a prior session where I asked that same question. And But if I asked anybody, raise your hand if you've witnessed or heard of Leaders being allowed to behave badly because they have the longest tenure, the highest title, and bring in the largest revenue. Everybody raises their hands. So some of how I think about it is we need really good, crisp, and consistent language to name pervasive dynamics that are underminers of inclusion and seen as essentially the way we do business or the way things ought to happen within organizations. Because the reality is, as I know we'll talk a little bit more later about Gen Zers and other generations. But the reality is is that if people, if there's an implicit culture where people are going to be mistreated because they're more junior or they're working not in a revenue generating role, how is that going to garner a deep sense of abiding commitment and motivation to work on behalf of the organization? How are people going to see and believe that they have potential to thrive or that, you know, essentially misaligned approaches around, well, you know, not only will I make more money becoming a partner, but at least I know I can behave badly. So that's like another way to aspire to climbing up the ranks. So organizations actually have to be very consistent in their language and equip people with the the tools to name some of the things that are going to undermine, you know, their inclusion efforts at a minimum. With regard to will companies sacrifice, you know, short-term gains to protect and support underrepresented talent, I think is um, a cynicism that has great merit because we've seen it time and time again. There's that. The second part about it too, I think around it is a matter of scale and operations. So when I think of the evolution of DEI activities and programs, like let's take women, for example, organizations would oftentimes say, well, we'll just, we need to fix the woman. We need to give them mentorship and business development and all this other stuff, which were fine and appropriate at the time, and in some respects are fine and appropriate still today, the more robust way of thinking is to say, what about our system only honors a narrow representation of leadership 
within our organizations and how do we expand the aperture so that way everybody can be meaningfully included and meaningfully affirmed in their ability to be a future leader within the organization. I say that because part of the appeal of the fix the woman isn't um, solely rooted in, frankly, sexist ideas. It's also, if women are underrepresented, that's a much smaller population to work with than challenging however many men we have on their inherent sexist beliefs and attitudes. Yeah. So once we get to the matter of scale of who who are we changing and how, <laughs> that presents a complexity. And when we're also thinking of, you know, what does that wrestling mean when one has the power to wrestle because of their status, rank, or title? I think of one conversation I had with a leader once where I said very transparently, I said, I would love to be wrong. No one has proven me wrong yet. I'm waiting. I said, when civil rights laws were passed and legislated and became the law of the land, I don't know of any company in the United States that said, let us go seek out the racists and fire the racists. They were all still there being held accountable to the laws. So what does it mean (laughs) when organizations just presume that racism is simply something that can be eliminated by the passage of legislation alone and people are able to maintain and wield power whether or not they are, whether they have only merely changed their rhetoric, but not their underlying thinking process, hearts, minds, and beliefs. So I say all of that to say that some of the challenges that we have around getting to, you know, balancing these longer-term goals of intergenerational change with short-term business outputs is both a matter of scale and, you know, how are we negotiating who has and wields power that could potentially undermine our efforts or pose resistance. Yeah. So, and then like to the last, to the word you used a few times towards the end of the answer, thank you for providing it is the power piece. It's like, it's like the unspoken thing in this work, in this space. And I, and I think Shane, that like the increased unwillingness to like really, uh, grapple with that and the need to redistribute uh, redistribute power to historically marginalized groups in um, organizational context is going to continue to create some of the same like it's going to just continue to drive the same cyclical behaviors and results that we have like you know one thing i've I've some and i i don't want to say who quote i can't remember but it was like the whole like diversity is being in Diversity is coming to the party. Oh, Renee Myers. Diversity is being invited to the dance. Inclusion. Oh, no. Being invited to the dance. Inclusion is um, being asked. Something something like, yeah. And it's like, okay, my challenge is always like, okay, but like, who gets, who get to like, who got to like set the date for the party? And who like decided the, 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 who decided to like actually like set the theme and the music and the food and snacks and like where the party's going to be over and who's, Who's like, who's coordinating the after party, right? Like what, like (laughs) there's all of those things around just like power and like really giving people space and space and autonomy to like really make decisions, decisions that may or may not uh, conclude with the same white folks being on top all the time. And I think Mm -hmm. like, you know, when you talk about, when we talk about this work in this space, especially as we look at the future of work. And I'm not even talking about like 2050. I'm talking about like between now 
in 2030. I think we're looking at like a generation of workers, uh, millennials who are now turning 40, as well as Gen Zers who are continuing to enter the workforce from college, who are not just looking for platitudes and pats on the back or right. free kombucha or to be told how to behave, but really are looking to be trusted with um, with power to make decisions so that they can shape so the environment for them. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Now, what other item I would say too is um, there's this really great graphic that Khalil Jameson Consulting leverages in their, the article is around, you know, I think the path to inclusion. And what's great about it is, um, here we are. It goes from kind of, you know, exclusive to passive, symbolic differences, critical mass, welcoming, and, you know, truly inclusive organizations. And then you can see that, you know, civil rights legislation, you know, moved a lot of organizations from exclusive to passive. And then there are a fair amount of organizations in the kind of symbolic phase and much fewer organizations in the kind of welcoming and truly inclusive phase. So I think that Ill- that that is essentially a good gut check for organizations to say that the long-term change of getting to a truly multicultural, welcoming, inclusive organization is actually a much longer time horizon and is much more difficult to maintain than many organizations can really anticipate and that they need to not misconstrue peaks of progress for examples of sustained change. And I think that even the time we're in today and, you know, late 2022, heading into 2023, I think what many people are failing to realize is that it is not uncommon following significant ways of efforts for racial justice, like what we've seen in 2020, to be followed by retrenchment and backlash of the status quo. And then oftentimes people get all surprised, like, what is happening? Where, where is this polarization coming from? Oh, my gosh, chaos. And I'm like, well, well actually, everyone, one, the, the same, the cyclical pattern has been consistent since, you know, the abolition of slavery. And then, two, what's also consistent with this pattern is that people are sometimes overly optimistic that whether it was, you know, civil rights movement or even the movements related to 2020 and the ones that happened in between are going to kind of secure the goal as opposed to all of these are efforts to move the needle. And while we also need people to kind of innovate and get us further than we went before, we also need a whole team and contingent of people to be prepared to address and challenge people who are resisting and then also to safeguard and maintain the gains that we've won beforehand. (laughs) And if we do not have that multifaceted set of, you know, actors doing this work around safeguarding, protecting, advancing, and championing for greater change than what we've achieved already, um, we should not be surprised when we find that the journey is not straightforward and is quite cyclical, or there's even kind of like significant backsliding. I mean, I was going to say, because it's interesting, like even when you think about like the Black rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, it was to fight for rights that were already granted like in the late in the 1800s. So it's just like, like the right to vote was already supposed to be codified through the constitution. 
Um, and yet there were black folks getting hosed down and chewed up by dogs to vote. And then we're looking in Florida and we see Ron DeSantis um, arresting black folks for trying to vote again. So it's just like, what? <laughs> like, it's, you know, I think like there's, to use, use the word earlier, I mean, I think there's, it's, there is a certain level of like justified pessimism when you talk, when you talk to, to younger people, when you talk to black and brown folks who just like look at history and just like, okay, what is this? I mean, like to that end, I'm curious, like how sustainable do you see DEI, quote unquote, corporate corporatized DEI as it exists today? Like, do you see this continuing through like 2030? 2030? Yes. (laughs) I think we're going to continue because here's, um, I don't think we're going to turn back on corporate diversity, equity, inclusion. What what will likely be rolled back is how the programs are implemented and who are they targeting and what level of investment they're going to get from organizations. However, that was always going to be the case. Though the There's a very big difference between I do not believe in diversity, equity, inclusion as a function wholesale for any number of reasons. And I don't agree with either this framing, this language, or this mechanism for achieving X, Y, or Z gains. Because the mechanics and the deployment of resources and how we do that, those are always going to be negotiable aspects of any change effort. So no, I don't think we're going away in 2030, but I do think what we're going to have to um, anticipate is some of some of the seeds that were already set from the Trump diversity ban, where a whole contingent of people were activated to essentially misrepresent, misconstrue, and undermine the spirit of work that is essentially in its, when I think of the work that I do around diversity, equity, inclusion, I operate from a curb cut phenomenon, meaning, you know, a curb cut in the street was designed initially for people with wheelchairs, but works for people pushing strollers, people who are cycling, people who have temporary injuries, and the like. So here's something designed for the most vulnerable that actually benefits a much broader constituency than the target population. So in that vein, much of what we're going to be doing around diversity, equity, inclusion is not something that's cast within this zero-sum game. It is actually something that will benefit everybody, including white men. (laughs) So how do we help people, one, stay on message, and then two, deploy the kinds of activities, strategies, and tactics that would ensure that people have a firm understanding of how investment in diversity, equity, inclusion also benefits them too. I think of this really powerful research that came from the Institute for Management Accountants, where they were looking at diversifying U.S. accounting profession. And one of the insights that they shared is that young white men who work in organizations and see women, LGBTQ professionals, or people of color being mistreated are not going to want to stay in those organizations either if they're critically conscious. (laughs) They're not going to want to stay in those organizations. So when organizations are not thinking holistically about retaining people of diverse backgrounds, where differences make a meaningful difference in people's experience of the workplace, they're going to lose just about all of their talent. 
not just the underrepresented talent. So I think we need to have one, have that kind of curb cut framing, but then also really help people see this as a, a linked fate sort of circumstance. I think there's this thing though, right? Like in the, in the DEI space, and I, you know, I could, I could be wrong. In fact, Shane, if you have some data, knowing you, you probably got some data that'll tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, this is more so observational. There's, there's like this, like, group of quote-unquote DEI professionals is like they go it's like they go in and they like their framework or their methodology is largely bent around naming and shaming and individualizing workplace inequity so it's like Mm -hmm. hey come in here and like grasp with grapple with your privilege or like this is why you as a straight white man are the problem and then white folks come back and go, whoa, I ain't signed up for that. I ain't trying to feel bad. I just want to help, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's like, part of me, Shane, while I may agree with the idea, I mean, there's a bunch of historical data that would show that straight white men historically have been to blame for a variety of things in the colon- in this colonized world. Hell, colonization on its, in, on its face that's not an effective way to like have any type of discussion on diversity, equity, inclusion. And yet like that continues to be, that continues to be an outsized voice in the work, right? Like I don't, I see much more of, Hey, what are you doing? Let's again, grapple with, you know, I, defining privilege, defining why the in, saying why the N word is bad. Like a lot of things that are, it's almost like it's shock therapy in a way to like really kind of like just jostle the person and not so much an interrogation of systems, policies, processes, practices, um, strategies that really can create a more equitable place to work. And so I think when you say like, Hey, like let's stay on brand and stay on message. I think there's some right sizing and internal accountability just like within this space that needs to happen as well, you know? Yeah. So like any industry, the diversity, equity, inclusion profession is subject to shifts in attitudes, norms, legislation, and the like. And the whole, you know, shame and blame strategy was one that was consistently endorsed in, I want to say the eighties and nineties and um, was followed by a let's another side of the pendulum around Let's let's make sure to keep it super positive, super happy, um, very enticing and persuasive. And my response to that is that that's actually not that much better, because if a business leader isn't running their business effectively, their leaders are not walking up to them talking about how do we get more? You know, you get more bees with honey. Let's be nice to you to help you bring in more business. No, they're going to say we have a performance issue. And we're, we're, we're not going to be pop. We're going to, we're going to communicate to you in a way that is commensurate with the urgency in the state of the issue. So my general perspective is we need to have tools and tactics to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, frame and message that are as varied as human motivation. So there's that. The other part that I would say too, is that, um, and this even relates to the Trump diversity ban, where one of the prevailing assumptions is that in examining systemic and historical inequities, 
and areas where we need to engage in historical redress is already inherently making people feel shame and guilt. So assuming that the exploration of this topic always and exclusively results in these negative emotions. I think of the work around Bernardo Ferdman, who is, you know, an inclusion scholar who's been doing work for over 20 years, where he talks about part of the work of inclusion is actually to distribute discomfort more equitably. In the sense that framings of the United States, framings of our companies that only present a very narrow frame for who can lead and contribute already hurts the people who don't see themselves. And that expanding the aperture is not to take away from the people who have been well represented, but to add to the multiculturalism, the multidimensionality, and the reality that other people have contributed to these industries being successful in the first place. So that is that is a that is a a, a pursuit of truth, not <laughs> a, a, a takeaway. The 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 third thing I would say is that we also have to acknowledge that it is easy to. Um, Part of what creates the fissures isn't necessarily the approach, although that can certainly be critiqued, is really the narrow way in which emotions exist in the workplace in the sense of people are either supposed to be polite and happy or they can be passive aggressive. And if you have the right amount of power and beauty and body privilege and gender, you can be angry and mean spirited in the workplace. That's a very narrow range of emotions for well, one, just any human, <laughs> first off the board. And, <clears throat> and when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, which is a sensitive topic, we do need to provide people the full complement of emotions and also help people understand that as we explore these difficult subjects, we want you to be able to examine and name the base of your emotions as opposed to trying to suppress or, or, or um, judge emotions that come up. Because there are really good things that can be learned from examining emotions. If you are feeling shame, the question you need to be asking yourself is, well, what exactly am I responsible for? Is that why I'm feeling shame? Or if I'm feeling angry, why are you feeling angry? Is it related to being wronged? Help us explore these feelings. So I think that this underlying assumption that one, exploration of inequities will result in shame and blame for any number of communities as an exclusive and inherent aspect is a flawed assumption. And I think the second part of why as a component of our training, are we not also talking about the emotional intelligence skills that allow us to undergo these deep and powerful explorations really thoughtfully? So as an aside, I think back to some of the work that I used to do when I was working at Brown University, working at one of the cultural centers, the Brown Center for Students of Color. I used to jokingly say, welcome to Brown, let's talk about oppression, because we had a pre-orientation program specifically on exploring dynamics of racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism and homophobia, ableism, imperialism, the list goes on. <clears throat> and the thought process wasn't, well, let's make people depressed. The thought process was that humans have feelings and systems do not. So we need to increase our ability to examine how systems operate and understand how they shape and deploy advantage and disadvantage on communities? And how do we create a world that is more just and equitable and representative and inclusive of all of us 
not just some of us. Because the reality is going back to, you know, my former life as a biased trainer, you know, when you think of when we were Neanderthals 40,000 years ago, how did we get from hunters and gatherers to systemically oppressive societies? That is through the choices that humans have made that have now accumulated to the society that we inherited today. So just like we made a whole bunch of choices that got us to today, we can also make a whole bunch of other choices that can create a more equitable and just future. So that is my very long-winded way of saying <laughs> how we tether some of these approaches and dynamics. So one, emotional intelligence. Two, thoughtful framing. Three, really, you know, having varied approaches and strategies to exploring, interrogating, and, you know, communicating about this work. I love it. Um, Shane, like, you know, as I think about, and I've, I've kind of made some allusions to it already, but think about the future of work. Um, there's, I, there's gonna just, right now we're like in one of the most complex, like talent markets that we've ever seen, right? Like when you think about like just the conjunction of a global pandemic that is still going on. I know that we're acting yes. like it is not, but it is. Um, the, we look at um, this push and pressure to return back to work. We're also looking at folks really renegotiating what's important for them and like folks kind of like resetting a bit on what they're looking to do. Um, and, mm-hmm. you're, and you're looking and you're still looking at brands that are hiring, like it, like despite some of um, this, these these layoffs that are continuing, you are still seeing uh, folks make getting hired at rates and dollars that are that are higher um, than they've been in a while. And so. Right. And so, like all that being said, you also see this latest this youngest generation, youngest working class generation coming into the coming onto the stage, Gen Zers. I'm curious, like, what is your perspective on on this group, right? Like, they are, what, the most diverse, the most politically engaged, maybe not always the most politically informed, but certainly the most politically engaged, um, I'd say, um, tech-savvy, um, socially conscious, uh, civil active, uh, civil-minded group that we've mm-hmm. never seen. Um, and when you think about historically, this is going to probably be some of the, like the largest group of gen gen one professionals, right? You think about like a lot of these folks are going to be, these are going to and uh, largely black and Brown. Like I, there are times when I'm kind of like, okay, what should, what should organizations should be doing? Cause I don't believe that they're ready at all for this generation of worker. I'm almost kind of like, well, do y'all just want to, do you just resign yourself to say, Hey, we're, we're going to create a model where we know we're going to have them for like 18 months. Do we like try to start slowly resetting our work structure to some type of like more gig forward model? Because these folk, these kids are not trying to like I me. Mean, if millennials are mobile, <laughs> certainly these, you know, like, I don't even know. I don't know what word we want to use for this generation. Um, I'm curious, like just what's your perspective on, on the generation of work worker and what it really means for the future of like just equity at work. So I think that one of the things that we always have to do as leaders, DEI practitioners, is ensure that we have really good data that helps us really understand the target audience that we're talking about. So when I think of Gen Zers, I think that they're all of what you described, and they are also malleable in the sense that the reality is that outside of residential college settings, most people are in intergenerational contexts where they can be mentored, sponsored, and influenced by other generations. So I think of 
two things. One, there's oftentimes this assumption that, you know, the younger people will save us <laughs> as if younger people didn't participate in the, um, what happened in Charlottesville. If younger people aren't participating in other heinous acts that are oppressive in other contexts, places, and spaces, especially when we think of, for example, recent acts of gun violence. So one of the things that we have to consistently um, monitor for is how do we have the, the the broadest, most nuanced, and most complex understanding of, you know, the groups that we're discussing? And <clears throat> also, what are the influencers and powers that might shape their political beliefs, the ways that they make meaning of work, and where opportunities will be deployed or, or, or distinguished, for lack of a better reference. So that's what I would say from a context study perspective. And when I think about Gen Zers, what the critical consciousness that they tend to bring to the workplace is um, something that we also have to make sure people of all layers of leadership need to understand. So one, we also the front line is their managers, because their managers are going to be the one that's going to train them, educate them, nurture them, and support them. And I always remind people that I work with, while in the United States, everybody is told to take ownership of their career, workplaces are interactive social processes. So people need to attract us, they need to recruit us, they need to onboard us, they need to develop us. They also need to hold us accountable and scrutinize us, scrutinize us, and then also put us a part of an advancement plan and fire us, unless the person is going to ghost you. Then I guess that's the end of the conversation. However, <laughs> when it comes to Gen Zers, I think that they're asking really, really thoughtful questions about how organizations are frankly like operating in the sense of when we think about this concept of quiet quitting, I don't necessarily think of quiet quitting as um, a net bad thing because I do think that organizations really do need to be saying, okay, hey, you, you aspire to do good work and you're ambitious. You're also not looking to be exploited. So how do we strike a balance between setting you up for success in a manner that gives you opportunity to um, learn, practice, fail, refine your skill sets in a, in a low-risk context while also ensuring that it doesn't go on for so long a degree or with such a significant workload that you feel as if you're a mule instead of, you know, a living, breathing person with aspirations and other competitive opportunities where you could be compensated for the skills that you're bringing and your worth. The, and here's my, my thing about like that quiet quitting stuff is like, it's just capitalist propaganda, Shane, like quiet. <laughs> it is right. Like, what do you mean? Quiet quitting quiet. You're saying you come in and you do your job and you don't do more than what you were hired to do. That's somehow quitting. Like that sounds like that sounds wild to me. Like I, I literally smell. I was like, mm -mm. and and also it's interesting because of course like these publications, like the, their job is to generate clicks, right? So they sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, like the machine just kind of, it's like they kind of come and think they say, okay, what kind of phrase can we come up with today, and like <laughs> get some. I mean, it's really no different than like the shade room, or any other like kind of like gossip space it's it's more it has a veneer of quote-unquote um respectability or uh credibility mm -hmm. but like the ultimate goal is the same which is to click on our stuff right so we're gonna say right. quiet quitting and then someone's gonna get mad and say why quiet quitting isn't real and then somebody's gonna turn into a hashtag and then we'll just talk about quiet quitting forever and then like we'll bring on some speaker to talk about why quiet quitting is good and we'll talk and then they'll have a debate with why quiet quitting is bad it's like it's like this but but like I, 
But it's interesting because, like, there's that aspect of it. But then there's also, like, hey, really, <laughs> going to your job and doing your job is just doing your job, right? Like, if I hire somebody to come to my house and, like, fix my roof and they come to my house and they fix my roof, I'm not mad that they didn't cl- clean my, uh, my wash my clothes. I'm not mad that they didn't <laughs> fix my sink, bro. Like, I'm not mad they didn't go above and beyond. I literally just need them to do what I hired them to do. Right. And I think the other piece is like, it's also like this, all this language that continues to like center and blame the worker and for living corporate, like for all of the work that we do, both like in our external storytelling, when we work with brands as well as like our internal consulting and storytelling, we and employee engagement efforts and strategies where we overemphasize on executive response on the responsibility, responsibility of the leaders. Mm-hmm. Like, if if you're if you're if you're mad that your employees are coming in and just doing what they were hired to do, I mean, first of all, congratulations that you have people that are coming in and doing their jobs and doing them that well. I think that's like it's hard to find good work. So like the fact that you have, if that's your problem, you have a really good problem. But if you want people to come in and do more, then I mean, I don't like um, create environments that would reward and incentivize people doing more, Shane. Precisely. I think the other way we can think about this whole like blowback around this concept of quiet quitting is also that it is um, connected to essentially pushback on companies having to think about the well-being of their employees because part a facet of quiet quitting is essentially setting boundaries. And given the power differentials, essentially we're seeing corporate America in many segments saying, how dare you employee set a boundary against me who's really connected to your livelihood? And because I'm so powerful and influential over your livelihood, how dare you tell me no, as opposed to wait. In years, in generations prior, people were willing to suppress and put up to, you know, put food on the table. And I think about it even within the context of mental health, where there's oftentimes this assumption that younger people are um, struggling significantly more than prior generations. And I would argue that what this generation has because of the shift in attitudes, norms, and beliefs, and openness around conversations around anxiety and mental health is that they actually just have more opportunities to share and disclose more openly. People were also unwell back in the day, but the message that they received was to suppress, <laughs> to persevere in a perverse way, in a, in, a, in, a, in a health undermining way, as opposed to a, you know, and in, in, in isolation. And now people are calling on, like, let's actually have more open conversations. And then you begin to see that in, in a lot of companies, one of the biggest expenditures from an insurance is um, behavioral health medication. Mm-hmm. Come on. And even when we think of even going back to accounting, for example, if we know that accounting is a public accounting is known as a churn and burn profession, we should actually not be surprised that people might be experiencing outsized degrees of anxiety. The two go hand in hand in the context of understanding our people holistically. (laughs) So 100% like Shane, can I talk to you about like this crazy, like I'm going to say this and we can wrap up because I'm, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? This is on my platform. So 
uh, spoiler alert, yo, Shane is not accountable for nothing he say on this platform. You know what I'm saying? Y'all can't fire Shane for talking Frank. Oh. Okay. All right. So check it. So Shane, which is me and you. Okay. We're going to stop the recording. Listen, what if all the black and brown people all, and I, and I say black and brown at the, at the intersection of, uh, mm-hmm. queer disability, like all, all intersectional non-white identities, what if they all got together and coordinated and like went to their insurance companies and all of them submitted mental health leave for like the stress and trauma that they deal with as like as it relates to just being like like stressed out at work at the same time? What do you think would happen if that happened? I think about that a lot. That is a very interesting question. One of the things I think about immediately is um, my data savvy person says, the documentation is important, y'all, because <laughs> when it's documented, it becomes material and real for people to actually take meaningful address in a meaningful way. Um, the other cynical part of me is like, oh, gosh, I hope they care, you know, because <laughs> it's like part of how racism functions in society is that, uh, one, people forget we're human. <laughs> and when people don't, when people do not, I think of um, this, uh, um quote that's going viral on social media um, with a black actress talking about it is actually not a problem for me to be black it is the only people who have a problem with being with my blackness are people who don't see black people as human (laughs) it sounds like you're talking about Diane Carroll there we go yes exactly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I think in a similar fashion that is one of the mindsets we have to have is when we display our humanity, will people see us as materially human and then take the actions that they would otherwise take for people that they believe to be human? The thing about it is, is that like, I, the reason I, I, I think about it as like something viable is because like, I've seen black folks um, take medical mental health leave and like, they'll have a psychiatrist that will write up the report, submit it. And it may not be long. Like it might only be like two weeks here, maybe a month. But like, if you were to like stress the system and like, coordinate across let's just say like 400 black professionals in consulting right like what would happen like i just i can dream i can dream shane i don't know but i think we already have some of it some of the documentation i think of one of the great research projects from coquel a diversity equity inclusion think tank based in new york city but working globally where in their research report on being black in the United United Kingdom, what they found in their research is that nearly 50% of the black people surveyed have intentions of leaving their workplace within a year. That is a, that is a lot of people. <laughs> and, and, and why are they thinking about that? The indignities that they suffer, the microaggressions that they encounter, the emotional and psychological weathering that happens from being... Because I think there's, you know, it's one thing to be the only... If you are feeling like the lonely only, and that is not just a moment in your career, but a defining feature of your career of, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 40 some odd years, then that is unpleasant. And I don't know why people would be surprised that is unpleasant and and, and causes attacks. And I think of, you know, this almost relates to our conversation around Gen Z and openness of conversations around mental health, but it becomes important for us to speak truth to that experience so people do not see that, you know, well, this person was able to tolerate that. No, they just didn't give you full insight into their lived experience. So you were assuming that because no one has named the problem that the problem doesn't exist. If a meteor was to come strike the earth 
it doesn't become less of a problem simply because we're failing to acknowledge or don't know about it. <laughs> the world will need to decimate it. <laughs> right, right, right. Shane, like, we could keep going. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I, for whatever it's worth, man, I'm proud to know you. I'm really excited about the work you're doing at Baker Tilly. I guess the last thing Thank I'll you. ask before I let you go is, like, we're looking at 2023. We're looking at a lot of economic uncertainty, folks trying to brace. Um, we're also, look, I really think we're looking at, like, a great retaliation. I think, like, I think organizations are frustrated. Organizations and the, and, and the powers that be are frustrated at the at employees really looking to like reset the world of work. And I think there's, there's pushback we're seeing at that now, but irrespective mm-hmm. 2023 is coming up. <laughs> what are you most excited about? As you think about your role, um, as you know, in, in the, in the lead, in the senior and the executive leadership role, you sit at Baker Tilly, what gets you excited? One continuing the work around racial equity that our firm committed to back in 2020. It's really great to be in an organization that has not, you know, hasn't stopped putting their foot on the gas around driving that really important work forward. Because when we think of, you know, the plug or some of the reports that came out around corporate America pledge X billions of dollars to racial equity and look at the small number that has actually been spent Um, because people have turned their attentions or just made public pledges and statements that they didn't actually really mean. I'm really glad that I'm not an organization that is like that. So that I'm really, really proud of to kind of continue some of this ongoing work, because arguably the kinds of changes that we're trying to see, to see require time to be seated. So you make a commitment in 2020, but you need to persist for the next, you know, seven or more years to really begin to see some of these things come to fruition. So I'm really proud of that work. I'm also really proud of some opportunities to really produce some really good thought leadership and partnership with different organizations to, you know, expand the conversation around gender equity or expand the conversation around racial equity to thinking about, you know, the full breadth of diverse communities under the banner of people of color. And of course, we can have lots of conversations around if people of color serves us in lots of different ways and facets, but that would, that'd have come to be another path. Come on, Shane. Come on, Shane. You trying to, you trying to have a part two right now. Okay. No, I, I, <laughs> look, um, we had to, we got to get you back, especially as Baker Taylor continues to do, and frankly, more more explicitly, as you continue to lead at Baker Tilly, definitely want to make sure we we know we're keeping the finger on the pulse there. So yeah. as your thought leadership comes to fruition, um, as you um, are you know as y'all are launching things, man, you got to come back. We got to talk about it. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Zach, for the time. All right, Shane. Always, man. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Peace. And we are back. Yo, shout out to Shane Lloyd. Shane Lloyd is a friend of the show. I greatly appreciate his work, appreciate his thought leadership, appreciate his intentionality in this space. And I appreciate, you know, really, we're in a place now where the time of being like slew footed and soft shoe, soft shoed about stuff is just over, right? Like either you're in this work to do the work or you're not. We do these same cycles, right? Like it's just the cyclical nature. Like suddenly we care about DEI and then we don't. Suddenly we're investing in it and now we're not. Um, and it follows like these very predictable trends. And I'm going to tell you, regardless of what the economy says, regardless of what your sh- shareholders say, the talent that you're looking to attract and that you need, even if you don't want to attract them, the talent that you need to survive is watching what you're doing. Okay, 
And it's important um, that you're putting up, right? That you're putting up and you're backing up these pithy statements and blog posts and PR stunts with tangible action. If you're looking to survive. Now, look, if you're looking to go the way of the dodo bird, hey, man, just keep on doing the same BS you've been doing. But if you're actually trying to create significant change, then you're looking to build and you're looking to attract talent and survive the next generation of work, whatever that may look like between like AI and machine learning and um, this next like technological age of innovation. You need to be thinking about how your workplaces can be as equitable, inclusive and fair as possible. Anyway, this has been Zach. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Elevation post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.